honor for me to be with you this morning, and I have enjoyed the friendship with your pastor over the past, hard to believe, 15 years, and miss him while he's not here, as I'm sure you all do as well. I have enjoyed reading his updates online and look forward to seeing uh, what God is doing in their ministry overseas. Uh, I would ask for your prayers for me. I'll be traveling overseas uh, this Friday, leaving to teach a group of pastors in Asia, and hopefully Brother Mark can give me some of those seasonings so I can uh, be well prepared for that. I tend to overanalyze a lot of things. This bothers my wife a lot. Uh, I tend to get more technical on some things than others, and and we can be reading a book or watching a movie together, and I tend to overanalyze what's going on or or pick apart something that's happening. Maybe it's a political debate. And I, I like to get down and, and try to really struggle with really what's going on there. And a lot of times I find logical fallacies there that really frustrate me and keep me from enjoying what's going on. And my wife tells me i just got to get over it. Uh, but sometimes I just can't. It's just bothering me. It's nagging in the back of my mind. And I found this to be the case also when I'm reading bedtime stories to my children. Because there's a lot of problems there that just don't make any sense. And perhaps the most glaring example would be the fact that most stories end with, they all lived happily ever after. Which just seems crazy to me. I mean, when in life do we ever see somebody go through one crisis and then have smooth sailing after that? It just doesn't happen. So I typically eradicate that totally out of the story, and my stories typically will end something more like this. Little Red Riding Hood left her grandmother's house, went over the bridge, and through the forest where she was eaten by three bears. The end. Because to me, that seems a lot more likely than that she wouldn't have any other problems in life. And I really don't want my kids to grow up thinking, boy, I just have to get past that one crisis, and then it'll be smooth sailing. I really want to break them into reality. Now, I will tell you that after a few years of telling stories like this, the nightmares have started to cease, and uh, we're getting more sleep now as a result. So I don't recommend that uh, for you. But sometimes there's a lot of fancifulness in these children's stories, and we tend to, at times, I think, miss the whole point of the story because we're so used to just kind of overlooking things that are there that really don't make sense, you know, talking animals and so forth. And I think it's unfortunate that a lot of times, because we throw those things out, a lot of times we do miss the point of the story. And so I'd like to, us to consider, uh, just briefly, the story of the three little pigs. Now, I'm not going to tell the story. I just want to re- remind us all of some of the details that are found there so we can connect some dots here as we go along. We have the, the three pigs. I, I typically name the pigs so we don't get confused. So we'll call one of the pigs um, Dwayne. We'll name one of the pigs Chris, and the other one we'll name LeBron. And so these three pigs uh, decide to go out into the world and, and, and make something of themselves, and they build structures, houses for themselves. And the reason why they're building these structures is not because they need a house to live in. It's because there's an enemy that's prowling around seeking pigs to devour. And so they have to have some means of refuge or safety, some kind of security from this enemy. And so they build these structures. Now, uh, Chris doesn't really want to put a lot of effort into it. And he goes up to Toronto, for example, and he builds this house out of straw. And the reason he builds it out of straw is because he doesn't want to take the time and the energy and the resources involved to put together a brick house. And so he builds it out of straw. And that gives him a lot more free time to 
go along doing whatever it is the pigs like to do. LeBron, he went to Cleveland, and he built a house out of sticks, and maybe a little sturdier than the straw, but again, it didn't take him a whole lot of effort to put it together. didn't take him a lot of time, and so he was free to go about enjoying whatever it is that he wanted to do. Dwayne, however, he goes down to Miami, and he puts together a stronger foundation. He puts together a brick house, and it's, it's sturdy, it's secure, it's, it's safe. And he spends more time doing that, more energy, and probably was more tired at the end and didn't have as much time to relax or entertain himself. But at the end of the day, his house was strong. And so when the wolf comes along and he sees this house of straw, he's able to blow it over. I mean, really, a goat could have taken care of this house, right? And uh, he comes to, to LeBron's house and it's made of sticks. And I mean, one little match and you have, you know, the house is gone and barbecue pork inside. So then these pigs have to go somewhere else to find safety. So they all go down to Miami, where where, uh, Dwayne has put together this more sturdy dwelling, and they house with him. And now they're safe from the wolf because they have this structure, this secure location, this safety area to keep them away from their enemy. If we think about it, we can get to the moral of the story and we can start to understand what it is that the author was really trying to get across. However, I think a lot of times in our own spiritual lives, we don't do what Dwayne did in the story. We're a lot more like Chris and LeBron. We're more eager to entertain ourselves with the things of the world. We're we're more eager to have time to relax than we are to really take seriously our spiritual enemy. One who Scripture describes as a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. Because if we took it seriously, we would seek for security rather than wasting our time away on things of the world. And so as we look into uh, the book of Ephesians this morning, I'd like us to recognize what Paul recognized and what he wanted his congregation to see there. We'll be looking at Ephesians chapter 6. If you don't have your Bible with you, you can use the Pew Bible. I believe it's on page 153. And we'll be looking at just a few verses here in Ephesians. I mentioned that we have a spiritual enemy in Satan. Elsewhere, Paul describes Satan's ability to, uh, to attack believers. You know, we might think, well, we're safe. We're safe from the enemy because we are Christians. And when we are safe from ultimate destruction, that's true. But Satan still can have an impact on our life. Paul told the Corinthians that Satan can tempt the believer, that he can get an advantage over the believer, that he can deceive the believer and lure us away from the truth. He also told that to the Thessalonians. We saw that in Genesis. We see it in Matthew. He told the Corinthians that Satan is able to torment the believer as he did to Paul and that he can hinder our ministry just as he hindered Paul. In Ephesians chapter 4, he warns us that we are not to give place to the devil. And specifically there he says that we do that by either lying or stealing or getting angry. Things that probably all of us do. Paul says to the Ephesians that can give place to the devil. And John warns us that Satan is accusing the saints before God day and night. 
We saw it all the way back in Job, and he's probably been doing it ever since. Accusing us to God, showing areas that we fall in and fail, and using that against us before God. Paul recognized that there was a very serious danger involved, and he wanted the Ephesians to be as serious about it as well. And so he tells them how they can resist the attack of the enemy. He knows that the enemy is not going to give up. And so he wants the church to be prepared for this ongoing struggle. He tells us that we have power and provision from God to overcome this struggle. And because we struggle every day and and the struggle is ongoing, we as believers must depend on the strength and the provision of God. We have an ongoing struggle and we must depend on the strength and provision of God. We're in Ephesians chapter 6. Let's read verses 10 through 12. Comes to the end of the epistle and he says, Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of His might. Put on the full armor of God so that you will be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. Paul tells us to be strengthened in the Lord and to take on this full armor. And, and we, we're kind of getting the, the full scope of a battle scene here, but it, if we were just to look at these verses, we might start to question, well, why is he talking about a struggle here? Why is he telling us that we're being attacked? Why is he telling us that we're wrestling against a spiritual enemy? Where, where did all this come from, Paul? You know, why are you talking about this now at the end of the book? Why didn't you start talking about it earlier? Why don't, why don't you fill us in on on who all is involved in the struggle and what's really happening. Why is it that we're in this, in this conflict to begin with? And the fact is that if we had time, we could go back and read the whole book of Ephesians and we would see that he has been talking about spiritual warfare the whole time. You know, sometimes people will read through Ephesians and they'll say, well, the first three chapters talk about all the wealth of riches that God gives to us. And it's true. It's there. They'll say the next three chapters pretty much are are heavy on our work as Christians, our walk in the faith, and how it is that we're supposed to obey God in this world. And that's true. And then they'll come to the end of chapter 6 and say, and this is the section on spiritual warfare. And I would like to submit that actually spiritual warfare has been taking place since the very beginning. All the way back in chapter 1 when he tells us all of the things that he's given, including our redemption and our, our, our salvation from spiritual darkness, and to talk about the fact that we were once children of disobedience following Satan, and now he's made us spiritually alive. He's taken us from Satan's team and put us on his team. We were following Satan, now we're following Christ. That's what started the whole battle. And then he goes on to tell us all of the things that he wants to do in in our lives and through us, and we get to chapter 3, and he says he wants to manifest his wisdom through the church. That is, God wants to display His wisdom through the church. And that might seem kind of crazy to some of us because the church has never been a group of people that have been solidly and staunchly obedient. You know, we went from being sons of disobedience, children of disobedience, 
into following Christ, but rarely do we always follow Christ faithfully. And a lot of times we struggle and we fight against each other. A lot of times we fall into temptation and sin. And we've never really been this strong group. We've always been a group of failures. And we would say, well, why would God choose to use people that aren't faithful to Him to manifest His wisdom? That doesn't seem to make sense. Paul gives us a little bit of insight into that in his own life. Because three times he said, I had, I had this thorn in the flesh, this messenger of Satan that was buffeting my body, and I asked God three times, take it away. I don't want this anymore. It's bothering me. And God says, no, I'm not taking it away. And Paul's response was what? He said, I'm glad. I'm glad that God didn't take it away. Why would you be glad, Paul? He said, because if God had taken it away, I would bring glory to myself. But if God doesn't take it away, then all the glory goes to Him. And therefore, I will rejoice in my weakness because in my weakness, God's power is made strong. It's made perfect. And so I'm going to go on being a weak vessel so that God gets the glory in all that I do. An illustration of this would be if, if we were to go to Lowe's or Home Depot and buy the most expensive chainsaw. And we take it out to the forest and we find a tree and we cut through the tree in a minute. I don't even know if that's physically possible, but let's just pretend. We cut through a tree in a minute. What would people say? That's a pretty impressive chainsaw. It's got a lot of power. If I was to take a plastic knife and go out and cut a tree in the forest in a minute, would people say that's an incredible plastic knife? Or would they say, wow, that guy must be strong. He was able to cut down the tree with a useless tool. Where does the glory go? Does it go to the tool or does it go to the one holding the tool? And Paul says if we're a weak tool, if we're that plastic knife, we can't be bringing glory to ourselves. Everybody's only going to look to God. And so why does God use the church? Is it because we are a strong, useful tool? No, it's because we are weak and we're fragile. And so He chooses to use us to glorify Himself, to bring honor to His name. And we see that even in chapter 1. Three times He mentions doing things to the praise of God's glory. And so God wants to bring glory and show His wisdom in the church. But if you look back in chapter 3, just for a moment, back in chapter 3, who is it that He wants to show His wisdom to? He wants to show His wisdom through the church, but to who? Chapter 3, let's look at verse 10 and 11. Actually, I'm sorry, let's back up to verse 8. To me, the very least of all saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unfathomable riches of Christ and to bring to light what is the administration of the mystery for which the, for, which for ages has been hidden in God who created all things so that the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known through the church, look at who, who this is to, to the rulers and the authorities in the heavenly places. Who are rulers and authorities in the heavenly places? We could classify them as angels and demons. These are angelic beings in the heavenly places that have some measure of control in this world. We know Satan is called the prince of the power of the air. 
We know in the Old Testament that there are uh, spiritual beings that, that uh, and, and give power or give uh, some kind of uh, control or authority to the worldly rulers. And so we have these angelic beings that have power in the world and they're on high, they're up in heaven, they're in the heavenly places. And God says, those are the ones I want to show my wisdom to. And now they're more powerful than we are. And so it seems kind of crazy again. Why would God choose something so, so weak as humans to show his wisdom to angels and demons? And it's because God wants to get glory from the angels and even from the demons by manifesting and showing his wisdom to them. They can only look at it and say, only God could do that. Well, Satan doesn't want that to happen. Satan's not exactly going along with God's plan. He doesn't want to see God succeed. And so Satan is going to attack. And who is he going to attack? He can't defeat God face to face. So he's going to attack the ones that God's using to show his wisdom. He's going to attack the church. He's going to attack individual believers. And so we're in this struggle, as, as Paul tells the Ephesians in chapter 3, we're in this struggle to demonstrate God's wisdom not just to the unbelievers in our world, but also to the angels and to the demons. God wants to demonstrate His wisdom and bring glory to Himself, and Satan is at work to stop that. And how are we as weak humans going to stand up to Satan? How are we going to keep from falling? We're going to be in this constant struggle for all of our lives. I appreciated the testimony that I believe Jennifer shared of, of her aunt who no longer has to struggle in this way. She's able to rejoice in the presence of her God. And we all look forward to that day. But until that day, we are in this struggle. And it's an ongoing struggle. So how do we stand against it? Well, Paul makes it clear that we're in this struggle. And then he tells us how to stand in chapter 6. And so once again in verse 10, he says, Finally, be strong in the Lord or be strengthened in the Lord. So because we are in this constant spiritual struggle, believers must be strengthened in the Lord, in Christ. We cannot get strength from ourselves, though we might give ourselves credit. We might think that we are able to stand. We might think that we are strong, but we are not. We are weak and we must depend upon the strength of God. We must continue to be strengthened in the Lord. And it's only when we are strengthened in Christ that we can stand firm in this constant spiritual struggle. His power is infinite. It knows no end. And so we don't need to fear the enemy as long as we are being strengthened in the Lord and in His mighty power. In chapter 1, Paul had prayed that the Ephesians would know this incomparably great power. And it was the same power that God had used to raise Christ, not just from the dead, but to, to raise Him up to the highest place in the universe, far above all principalities and powers and rulers. Again, angels and demons. And the power that raised Christ from a physically dead state to a place of exaltation above angels and demons is the same power that He gives to His believers into the church to stand against Satan. And Satan is aware of that. He's going to try to distract us from that. He's going to try to get us to focus on ourselves 
and to think that we're strong enough to stand. And Paul recognizes that is not going to happen. We cannot trust in ourselves. We must depend on the strength of God. In chapter 3, Paul also prayed that they would have this power in their inner being from the one who is able to do immeasurably more than we ask or imagine according to His power that's at work in us. God can do more than we think. He can do more than we can imagine through His power that He puts into us, that He gives to us in order to stand. And so rather than quiver in fear because Satan is more powerful than us, we must focus on the one who's more powerful than Satan. And we must be strengthened in him. We must study his word, not just to check it off of our list. You know, I would, I would equate that with what the, two, the first two pigs did. They were checking something off the list. Yep, we've got to build a structure. Okay, boom, that's done. Somebody who says, I've got to read my Bible to check it off my list, they want to build up a straw house. That's not going to give them any security. James says we must look into the perfect law of liberty and then change according to what it says. If we're going to be strengthened in in the Lord, we've got to study what His Word says, not just to check it off of our list, but so that it gives us the power that we need to stand against Satan, so that we can follow it and do what he says to do, that we can live the Christian walk that Paul described earlier in this book. So we must have this power in our inner being, the power that is immeasurable and is more than we can ask or we can think of. We must recognize we're weak. It's, it's a humble thing. We, we must be humble about our abilities and recognize we are not able to stand against Satan on our own. We must have the spiritual strength that God gives. Well, because we're in this constant spiritual struggle, we, mu- we, mu- we must not only be strengthened in the Lord... But Paul says we also must be clothed in the full armor of God. We must be clothed in the full armor of God. And a few points under here uh, in this full armor is, first of all, we must have the full armor of God. Not just a, a single part. We must have the full armor of God because of the nature of the schemer. Who is the schemer? Verse 11. Put on the full armor of God so that you will be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil, his tactics. He's he's crafty. He's subtle. He's able to trick us. He's able to deceive us. And we must be prepared for that. And the only way we can be prepared to stand against the devil's schemes is to put on the full armor. And I'm emphasizing the word full there because... It's not that we can just pick and choose which ones we want. Well, I, I think I need that helmet, but I'm fine without the shoes. You know, I, I'll put on the belt, but I really don't need the breastplate. I, I'm, I'm fine. I, I, can, I can handle any attacks there. He's not saying pick and choose the ones that you think you need or the ones that you're comfortable wearing. He's saying you have to have the full armor. It comes as a package, and it must be worn as a package in order to accomplish its intended purpose of making us able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. By the way, the idea of standing here is it's not the opposite of running away. He's not saying, I want you to stand instead of running away. He's saying, I want you to stand as opposed to falling down or failing. He wants us to have success in resisting Satan. 
And if we're going to stand firm against the devil's schemes, we must have the full armor. He's going to look for a weakness. He's going to look for our vulnerabilities. And so we must not allow him to, to find any. And the only way we can do that is to put on the full armor. Now, we'll not take the time to look through every individual piece today. And perhaps you've heard messages on that or you've studied it for yourself. And I would encourage that uh, if we're going to wear the full armor, we need to know what the full armor is. But let me just draw your attention to the first one that he mentions. Uh, verse 14, Stand firm, therefore, having girded your loins with truth. Or we might say, put on the belt of truth. Well, why would he say that first? You know, it's possible. It's possible that he's saying that because that was a big vulnerability to the Ephesian church. Earlier he had said, don't give place to the devil by lying. Which would indicate to us that some in the church were lying already. He also mentioned earlier that there were some false teachers that were coming in that were teaching a false gospel. They were teaching false things, untrue things. And they were in the church already. It wasn't that they were outside preaching to the church. They were inside the church infiltrating the believers. And so it seems like the area of truth was a, a sore spot for the Ephesians. It was an area of weakness for them. An area that they needed to be protected in. And so Paul begins by saying, put on the belt of truth. Make sure that you are not allowing Satan to get an advantage on you in this area of honesty, of truth. And you know we're all aware that God is a God of truth. Satan is a father of lies. We're all aware of the fact that God wants us to be honest and to be true. But how often do we make that a priority above other things? Finances, for example. And, and you know, I, I, I doubt any of us would be tempted to walk into a store and steal something or walk into a bank and rob it. Those are not the things that hopefully we are tempted to do. But when we're filling out our tax forms, how easy would it be just to put a different number on there? I remember buying a car from a, a dealership and I asked him if we could somehow work it out so he could uh, fit the, the tags, title, and, and, and fees into the, the bottom line price. And he said, well, it's real easy to take care of the taxes. You just put zero on the form and then you don't pay any taxes. And I thought, I wonder how many people do that. Just follow that advice. Tell a lie in order to save a little money. You know, what does the government need our money for anyway, right? I need it more than they do. And God tells us, Paul tells us, in order to not give place to the devil, we must put on the belt of truth. We must be characterized as people of truth and honesty and integrity, regardless of what it costs us, so that Satan doesn't get the advantage. He talks about the fact that it's, it's not of flesh and blood, but it's a spiritual battle. And, and sometimes we say, well, we could keep it separate and we'll just do it. In spiritual matters, we'll be true, but in physical matters, we can do whatever we want. Well, that's why Paul has made it intertwined here. He shows us that in the Christian life, in our walk with Christ on this earth, that's the arena where the spiritual battle is taking place. That's where Satan's going to trip us up. And so even though we're not wrestling against a physical enemy, it does take place in the physical world. And so we must put on the belt of truth to avoid giving place to the devil. He's going to scheme against us. And in order for us to not fail, 
we must wear the full armor. So we have to wear the full armor because of the nature of the schemer. He's, he's tricky. He's crafty. We also must wear the full armor because of the nature of our struggle. The nature of our struggle. There were cunning teachers in, in Ephesus who were trying to lead the believers away from Christ. There were many in the city that were classified as disobedient. Children of disobedience. He says, you guys used to be children of disobedience. You guys used to follow Satan and now you're following Christ. But there's still people over there that are, that are still children of disobedience. That is, they're still living this disobedient life. And Paul points out, those are not your enemy. They're, they're flesh and blood. They're not your enemy. You don't have to worry about fighting against them. And, and I would suggest that a lot of times we do get into battles where we it seems like we're fighting against people that either don't believe in God or have a different belief in God. And we say, well, I'm going to argue against that group over there. Or I'm going to argue with my neighbor who goes to a different church because he's all wrong. And I'm not saying we shouldn't back down from discussing what is true and what's not. But when we're discussing with an unbeliever or someone who has a different view of Scripture, we must recognize they are not the enemy. Satan is. And if he can distract us into fighting with them, it takes our focus off of resisting him. But also I would suggest that a lot of times we are wrestling with people over here. We wrestle with others in the body of Christ. We wrestle with others in our own church. And we say, I can't stand that guy, or I don't like that woman, or whatever. And our fight becomes with people in the body of Christ where there's supposed to be unity, where there's supposed to be this uh, display of wisdom before angels and demons, and we get into little disagreements with each other. And Paul says, we are not wrestling with flesh and blood. That, they're not our enemy. Our enemy is Satan. And if we're going to do what God wants us to do, we cannot focus our energy fighting with other people. We must be standing firm, resisting Satan. The nature of our struggle is spiritual. We have a spiritual enemy who is constantly at war with us. And we must not be distracted by those that are flesh and blood. But because it is a spiritual struggle, we must have this full armor of God. Say, so how does that work in the real world, though? I mean, how, how do we say, well, it's a spiritual struggle, but it, it takes place on earth? How does that, how does that, what does that really look like? I mean, Paul, you're telling us not to struggle with flesh and blood, but we're struggling with an enemy we can't see, we can't touch. How, how does that happen? How do we do that? What, is, what does that look like? What does it look like to say, I've got to please God in all things, even on things on the earth? so that I don't give place to, to Satan. How does that, I don't even see how that really happens. Well, we make God's priorities our priorities. And by being strengthened in the Lord and, and studying His Word and praying to Him, we see what is important and what's not. When we put on the belt of truth, we know that we have to interact with people based on truth. And when we, and we look at it as a spiritual struggle, we have to look at spiritual victory. How do we get spiritual victory? in this world. What does that look like? And so Paul doesn't just tell us how this is supposed to work. He demonstrates it for us. Towards the end of chapter 6, Paul models for us what this looks like. 
you're probably familiar with the fact that Paul was in prison right now, most likely in Rome. And here he is in prison, and he's writing a letter. And if it was one of us, if it was me, I'll, I'll, put the, I'll put the onus on me. If it was me writing the letter, I would say something like this. Uh, pray for each other, and don't forget to pray for me that I get out of jail. You know, because remember, they prayed for Peter and angels came and took him out of jail. And that would be really awesome. So why don't you guys pray that some angels come and deliver me from prison? Or pray that I get a full pardon and they just let me go. That's what I would be printing. That's the message I would be sending to the churches. And Paul is more interested in spiritual victory than physical victory, if you will. So in verse 18, he says, with all prayer and petition, pray at all times in the Spirit, and with this in view, be on the alert with all perseverance and petition for all the saints. Once again, he's noticed that there's ongoing spiritual struggle. He says, so you need to be praying for each other all the time. You need to be on the alert, recognizing Satan is looking for an opportunity to influence you and to draw you away from Christ. Always be on the alert and pray for each other. He's not telling this to one individual. He's not telling Brother Clayton, hey, Brother Clayton, make sure you're praying for everybody else in the church. He says it in a way that it means everybody has this responsibility. We all have the responsibility to be praying for everybody else in the church. Helping the, asking God to help them to be alert and, and to be ready for the spiritual struggle with all perseverance and petition for all the saints. We all need to be doing this. But what about Paul? What prayer request does he have for himself? Verse 19, And pray on my behalf, not that he gets out of jail, pray on my behalf that utterance may be given to me in the opening of my mouth to make known with boldness the mystery of the Gospel for which I am an ambassador in chains that in proclaiming it, I may speak boldly as I ought to speak. Paul doesn't say, pray that I get out of this physical prison. He says, pray that I am released from the bondage of fear. Because I'm afraid to share the gospel with those around me. And the better victory is not me getting out of jail. The better victory is these people coming to know Christ. The better victory is that I would, get, I would overcome this fear of sharing the gospel with them and proclaim it boldly. So don't pray that I get out of these chains. God wants me in these chains. I'm an ambassador in chains. It's where I'm supposed to be. God wants me here. There's people all around me that need to hear the gospel. And he wasn't asking for physical relief from his torment. He was saying, while I'm here... I need to do what God wants me to do. I need to have spiritual victory and recognize that these chains are not the enemy. The enemy is fear. It's stopping me from doing what God wants me to do. And I'm tempted to just sulk in the corner and just be sorry for myself. I'm tempted to, to focus on my own physical problems and ignore the fact that these people are dying without Christ. Paul doesn't ask for physical deliverance because the spiritual conflict is the real battle. The spiritual fight that Satan wants to tempt him to stay away from, to tempt him from sharing the gospel, he says, 
I've got to have boldness to do that. That's what God wants me to do. And so pray for me that I'll have boldness to share the Gospel while I'm in these chains. He demonstrates for them what spiritual victory looks like in the midst of physical difficulty. So we don't have a physical enemy, truly. We only have a spiritual one. And he's in this ongoing struggle with us. We need to be able to stand firm against him and not fail. The only way we can do that is by being strengthened in the Lord and taking on the full armor of God. Now, it's doubtful that this material is new to any of us. We probably are familiar with it. And as familiar as we are with it, at times perhaps, just like those children's nursery rhymes and stories, we tend to just forget about the meaning of it. We tend to not put it into practice. And how many times I've heard or memorized some of these verses and never really thought about the spiritual struggle that's going on right now. The spiritual, spiritual struggle that's going on in my heart. The spiritual struggle that's going on in my church. The spiritual struggle that's going on with my family. The spiritual struggle that's going on with my neighbors and those I come in contact with every day. How often do I really think about those things? And I confess, it's, it's rare. But that's the real struggle. That's what's really important. And more important than me having a nice house, a nice car, wonderful things, more important than those things is that I stand firm against this enemy, Satan. That I am strengthened in the Lord. That I put on this full armor so that I don't fail when he attacks. How many of us are willing to bend the truth to save a little bit of money? How many of us are willing to let anger control us and get the better of us and lash out at someone who does something we don't like? Paul had already told the Ephesians that opens the door to Satan. It gives him an opportunity to attack. How much effort do we spend struggling against flesh and blood opponents and let our anger and our frustration and our bitterness pour out on them? How often do we struggle against brothers and sisters in Christ instead of struggling with our true enemy, the devil? And how often do we rely on the one who is able to give us strength instead of trying to go it on our own? No, I don't need to spend time in the Word today because I got enough yesterday. I can face Satan today on my own. I've got this one covered. No, Paul says it's an ongoing struggle. We must always be strengthened in the Lord. That isn't a one-time thing that just keeps on lasting. It's something we do over and over and over. Be strengthened in the Lord constantly. So we must depend on this strength. We must depend on the provision of God and trust in the full armor of God that He gives to us. To put it on, to wear it, to, to use it. Not to attack Satan. He doesn't call us to that. He calls us to stand against him. It's a defensive thing. Christ modeled it for us. He resisted the devil and the devil fled. That's what we are called to do. And the only way we can do that is by being strengthened in the Lord, in His mighty power, 
and putting on the full armor of God. May we endeavor to do that, not just today, but throughout the rest of our lives. Let's pray. God, we are so thankful that You've chosen to deliver us from the bondage of sin. We thank You for converting us from children of disobedience into heirs of Your kingdom. We thank You for giving us this power to stand firm. We thank You for providing us with armor to stand against the devil's attacks. But we confess, Lord, so often we leave the armor in the corner and try to do it in our own strength. We often get distracted from what the true battle is and we look for spiritual or physical strength instead of spiritual strength. We look for financial strength. We look for peace and tranquility in things of this world instead of in You. We ask that You would forgive us of this, help us to change by being strengthened in Your power, and help us to daily put on the full armor of God so that we will have the ability to resist our enemy. We ask all these things in